Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's emergency edition of the New Line Institute for Strategy and Policies Contours podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Harris, and I'm the Senior Analyst and Program Head for State Resilience and Fragility here at the New Lines Institute. Today, I will be joined by my colleagues Kamran Bukhari, Rasha Al-Akidi, and Caroline Rose to discuss what's next in Afghanistan as the Taliban stands triumphant in Kabul. We'll talk about how the Taliban will transition from a non-state authority to a state, if that's even possible, and what type of geopolitical scenarios could emerge in Asia in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Kamran, Rasha, and Caroline, thank you for joining us today for our important discussion on the future of Afghanistan. All right, well, Kamran, let's start off by asking you this question. Kabul has fallen. What happens next in the next few months? So thanks, Nick. Look, there are a number of things that have to happen, and I think the ball is in the Taliban court. And what that means is that they are in the driver's seat. They have neutralized pretty much any effective resistance and they now need to establish a new security order. That's the first order of business where they need to make sure that uh, there are no threats out there to their process of consolidating power. So this is the pre-stage before you actually establish a government, make announcements that so-and-so is going to be minister, and this is how we're going to rule. That comes later, but we're in those very early days where there's nobody else, there is a vacuum, and the Taliban need to be able to deploy themselves or settle down into building the foundations of their Emirates 2.0 or a new regime. And quite frankly, they're not just there themselves because I'm pretty sure that even they thought that victory would come to them so quickly and that the other side would collapse so swiftly. So you only make so many plans for the future. And if you think that you're going to win in a month, then the details are left to as you get more closer to the due date, if you will. And so I think that they had very little high-level strategic thinking of what they would do. And now they are huddling. They're trying to make sense of reality as it is presenting to themselves. For example, now we're seeing video footage this morning of Tolu News, which is a major media outlet where they haven't shut it down. You see their female presenters and reporters wearing the hijab, but they're being allowed to report from the streets. They have in their studios Taliban officials who are giving interviews. So in many ways, I think they're trying to make sense of this new reality that they find themselves in as the only militia out there of any worth. And they're not a government yet. Again, as I said, first order of business is to set up a security infrastructure. We can talk about that later on. And of course, make sure that they have the intelligence presence that basically can serve as their eyes and ears about what is going on around them as they build Emirate 2.0. All right, so let me take pull on this point because in that process of building Emirate 2.0, it's very interesting. As you all know, the Taliban for several years now have been held up as the model for, let's say, Al-Qaeda's offspring or other radical 
extremist groups to transition from terrorist or revolutionary organizations into a state-like actor. Rasha, you've done a lot of work in thinking on how non-state authorities transition into state authorities, and you have obviously world-renowned expertise on Salafi Jihadi and other extremist organizations of different stripes. What are you looking for now? Thank you, Nick, for the question. I think this is very important, and perhaps because of the focus right now, on whether it's on the military angle or the humanitarian angle, the catastrophe that's happening in Afghanistan, at this point might be overlooked a little bit. I do feel that this perceived victory for Taliban is going to act as a catalyst and is going to energize the sentiment of global jihad amongst all jihadists. And let's call them people that are in the gray area, but lean towards jihad a little bit. They will look at this as a victory. They will look at this as the one thing that actually worked. Let's look at the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Let's look at Anafa. That failed. It didn't achieve the goals. Even when they were in power, they did not satisfy that trend of strict, let's say, Salafism or jihadism just as an ideology. It did not satisfy that. ISIS was too ambitious, perhaps, playing on a trend of the caliphate, where the caliph had to be from the lineage of the prophet. That was too complicated, perhaps too ambitious. Whereas the Taliban, they achieved something. And we see this just from how different global voices from different spectrums of the Muslim world have come united to congratulate and indirectly endorse the Taliban. That tells us something. That's the one thing I would be looking at is how different groups are going to look at this. Let's leave the non-state actors aside for now. Just look at it from an ideological perspective. This is what I find very concerning and I would focus on for this time being. For the other groups, for other non-state actors, this can also be a model that they did succeed, it will, if not not be a model for them, it will be something to encourage them to think maybe even a little bit out of the box. So it depends on the next stage of how Taliban will maintain this success or this victory, whether it's how they will rule, how they will continue to fight, what is the next step for them? Can I just ask you a follow-on very quickly, Russia? Do you see this Taliban victory you know, it came with a lot of, as Kamran has said a lot on Twitter, there's a, a very sophisticated information operations campaign that it that has rolled out with the Taliban's military and political maneuverings. Do you see the Taliban now presenting a model that other regimes around the world will have to contend with moving forward? Or do you think it's still too early to say? I think it is too early to say but they, this also, as Kamran just said, this is in their court now. We will have to see how they decide to act. So far, within day two or three, we are seeing signs of a willingness to be accepted by the international community. But we also need to understand that all these militant groups, whether it's Taliban, whether we see HTS in Syria, they do play on pragmatism. They play on this kind of signaling. It's not necessarily even pragmatism. It's the moment that they are in power and they have secured their presence, they resort to their old ways without even apologizing. So this is something that the international community also is aware of. But right now, that's just the reality of how things are on the ground. There's already been a military withdrawal. There's a lack of appetite to confront this. And they do have the leverage of not being even compelled to change their ways. These signals are what we need to look for. The context on the ground in Afghanistan today are very different than they were in the 90s. And the context globally is also very different. These are things that they will take into consideration. As for the rest of the world and the rest of the nation states, especially Afghanistan's neighbors, I believe that they're just looking, they're just waiting to see what happens next.
Okay, so Caroline, I want to bring you into the discussion. You've been thinking a lot about the geopolitical ramifications, both of the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as the signaling across Eurasia. Taking what Kamran and Russia have said, in a lot of ways, this is put up or shut up time for the Taliban. So what are you looking for from how the U.S. now is going to approach this war over the aftermath of the war, if you will, in Afghanistan and its policy as it relates to the pivot to Asia? So I think that Kamran was correct in that for the Taliban, for them, there's no real long-term gain. I think that many of their leaders were also surprised with the very speed and pace of territorial gains that they made over the last week. Some leaders even exclaimed that they didn't expect to take Kabul so quickly. Even though that they have, they've had 20 years to prepare for this, I'm not necessarily sure if there is a game plan in place to obtain the legitimacy and the credibility needed for international recognition. I think that's certainly the next step for them. And so I think while the U.S. has lost a lot of leverage with withdrawal, at the same time, it still has some semblance of leverage left. And it is engaging with the Taliban and other Afghan actors at potential peace discussions. I think that the future of this is very murky, but certainly there has been some behind the scenes efforts to try and make that happen as one last ditch effort to try and salvage any other form of Afghan governance other than the Taliban. I'm not necessarily sure if the U.S. also has a game plan with this as well, just especially because they expected it was going to take 18 months for the ANDSF to stave Taliban successes. So I think that right now the picture is very unclear. There's no clear game plan for either actor, but it's certainly going to come down to the Taliban trying to obtain international legitimacy and the U.S. putting pressure on its allies and its partners in trying to withhold that from the Taliban. Caroline, I really appreciate you walking us through these different geopolitical dynamics. Watching President Biden's speech yesterday, looking at it as from a neutral, dispassionate observer, one of the messages that came to me from President Biden's speech was basically, look, I ripped the Band-Aid off the wound of Afghanistan, and fundamentally, this doesn't get healed unless the Afghanis come to an agreement with each other. But you also saw in the U.N. Security Council resolution that was passed, which the U.S. had a heavy hand in, uh, in working with Russia and working with China, you see there's almost a quiet consensus among the international regional actors that the Taliban has to now show its stuff. And I want to ask you, do you think that the United States can live with a situation in Afghanistan where there aren't external threats to the U.S. from the country, but the U.S. doesn't come to embrace the Taliban rule. And what does that mean for U.S. policy in Asia? I think it might have to in many ways, just because you're right, there doesn't necessarily have to be an existential threat stemming from Afghanistan. I think the real question for the United States, and this also includes Central Asian republics and, and other neighbors in the region, I think it really comes down to the potential overspill of insecurity. And for the United States, it wants the region to be secure. It wants its interests to be kept away from threats. For the U.S., that's going to be the main concern with Afghanistan. So really, it's going to be about not only if the Taliban can obtain international recognition, 
but also if there's going to be any potential overspill of terrorist organizations, of violence, of small crises that will that'll affect Pakistan, it'll affect Tajikistan, it'll affect a number of other Central Asian republics. And so I think that's where the United States has interest. So for example, right now, the U.S. is holding talks with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan on a p- potential outpost for operations in the region. That could certainly be affected. The U.S., of course, wants to try and save the efforts of the Belt and Road Initiative in the region. That could certainly be affected. So there are a lot of quiet interests that are in play here that the U.S. is going to want to try and protect from potential Afghan instability, especially posed by a Taliban rule. Okay, great. So now, Kamran, I want to come back to you, and I want to dive a little bit on this question of, okay, how does the Taliban consolidate power? Looking at the Afghan expert community, both Afghanis as well as people from the near region, South Asia, Central Asia, as well as Westerners who are very engaged with Afghanistan, there's this sense now that we are in a real inflection point in the history of Afghanistan. The situation could, over time, stabilize. You could have brokered agreement where you have a decentralized Afghanistan, an Afghanistan of its regions with a strong Taliban, even strong Pashtun flavor, or it could over time deteriorate back into conflict. Um, as you know, some of the former regime, it's weird to say it, but Anshan regime members of the Afghani state have decided that they are going to continue to fight. And I just want to read a tweet that came out this morning from Afghanistan's former vice president, Amrullah Saleh. He says, it is futile to argue with at POTUS, so Joe Biden, on Afghanistan now. Let him digest it. We Afghans must prove that Afghanistan isn't Vietnam and the Talibs aren't even remotely like Viet Cong. Unlike U.S. NATO, we haven't lost spirit and see enormous opportunities ahead. Useless caveats are finished. Join the resistance. And there are also reports that that he is being joined in this resistance by Ahmad Shah Massoud in Panjshir. You We've seen that certain other leaders, such as Abdul Rashid Dostam and Atta Muhammad Noor, have fled the country but continue to vow to fight on. I want to ask you, you are a member of the Taliban Security Shura. You're sitting in Kabul. You're managing a movement that in many ways is, is like franchisees of a larger franchise. Afghanistan is very challenging to rule just in general. What are you trying to do in these next few months to solidify and consolidate your control? It's a complicated situation with regards to the question that you pose, and there are several parts to it, and allow me to unpack each of them as quickly as possible. Number one, to start from the very end of your question, As I said earlier, the Taliban are fairly confident that they have broken the back of any resistance for now. If you look and something I was tweeting at the time when it was happening, it almost seems like a fleeting moment now, given the speed at which the Afghan state fell. But the Taliban went to the north first. In other words, not actually physically go there, but actually they took over northern provinces by design. And they waited until they consolidated that because they knew the South is the low-hanging fruit because this is part of their core turf. So they took over six or seven key provinces from where they're traditionally people like Atta and Dostum and Amrullah Saleh and the clan of former Northern Alliance leader Ahmad Shah Massoud would offer resistance to the Taliban. By doing that, they broke the strategic rear of the Afghan state. 
So in other words, if you go from the south like they did the first time around and then reach Kabul, you still have the northern areas to contend with. And anybody who is in Kabul, the Kabul government can then retreat into the northern provinces, the northwest, and then regroup and try to mount a counteroffensive or at least offer resistance. The Taliban wanted to deny their adversaries that opportunity. They've done that. So they're fairly confident that there's not going to be any resistance anytime soon. Number two is that these people who have fled, they are discredited in the eyes of a lot of people, at least for now. There will always be those who are silently supporting them and have no choice but to be quiet about it. There are a lot of those people out there, but that of a latent sentiment. It has to be mobilized and reorganized into an act of resistance, and that will take a long time, especially if the reports that these key leaders of the anti-Taliban camp are no longer in country. It's not verified how many of them have left, and if they have left, where are they? I suspect they're in Tajikistan, if I had to guess, and that means that they could at some point try to come back. But right now, the Taliban are in control, so it becomes very, very risky to do that. So the Taliban are fairly confident. So what they want to do now is build their regime, if you will. Let's not even call it the regime. Let's just call it the new order, if you will, for a lack of a better term. By order, I mean a system in which they know what's happening in the country. That's why I referred to about intelligence capabilities. They want to know what's happening, not on the streets, but in conversations and places where they're not there. Is there an effort to threaten their nascent power? Uh, remember, this this is very similar to what the clerical regime in Iran did when they came to power. They purged, they executed people. Obviously, the Taliban cannot do that because they risk making the world angry. They're trying to play, quote unquote, nice right now. So they don't have the option of purges and executions that the Iranian regime had back 40 years ago. But what they will mimic the Iranian regime in doing is building a security force that is dedicated to the preservation of their ideological project, which is the Emirate. They have to deal with the Afghan National Security Forces, whether they're army, police, and specifically their most hated entity, which is the National Directorate of Security, the former regime's intelligence service. So my sense is that they're going to get rid of people quietly, not executing them, but firing them, disbanding certain units and whatnot. But they want to retain the superstructure in order to be able to have a security force because starting from scratch, taking a Taliban militiaman and turning him into a policeman or an intelligence official, much less a soldier, is a longer process. They much rather put many of those militiamen into the ideological force that they will create along the lines of a hybrid between the IRGC and Hezbollah. And so there's that aspect that they'll be working on in order to make sure that their regime is secure. And the other thing that the Taliban are looking at and they're hoping is that they have established a new reality and the world has no choice but to acknowledge recognize and do business with them. It's going to be very difficult for the West 
given everything that has happened, the evacuation and the political pressure on various Western governments, particularly the Biden administration, in the way that the completion of the withdrawal plus the evacuation and everything that has happened since the fall of Kabul has created vulnerabilities for the Biden administration. So it's going to be risk averse. They're not going to go and start to hobnob with the Taliban regime or regime in the making. But there are countries like China. They've already said, hey, we're going to recognize and we're going to do business. They have their own problems to deal with, but that is their imperative. Uh, This is not a move that they're going to make out of confidence. This is a move that is reactive. And because there's a vacuum and the Chinese have no better way to deal with a vacuum that could threaten their commercial interests in the region. So they are going to engage with them, especially through their Pakistani allies. Pakistan is another country that's now, okay, the Taliban are a reality and Pakistan is schizophrenic right now. There are those who say that this is, for lack of a better term, a good thing that has happened. And they've been waiting for it for a long time. And because they see the Taliban as their proxies and allies, so there's a section of the Pakistani state and society that looks at the Taliban like that. But then there's an equally strong element of the Pakistani state and society that sees the Taliban this time around as a huge threat to their own Islamic Republic. How do you keep an Islamic Republic next door to an Islamic emirate that is competing on grounds of Islamic legitimacy? And then Iran is usually a very risky actor. It's not risk averse, it's the opposite. They engage in activities that other states would not. They went from being enemies of the Taliban to being their sponsors. And they are the ones who have the most influence uh, out of any external power with both sides. So I think that the Iranians will recognize and they're already putting out these statements that the United States uh, withdrawal is an opportunity for quote unquote peace. And so there's that. The Central Asian republics are monitoring the situation. They don't know what to make of it just yet. And they will coordinate with Russia and China and others. So I think that's where we are externally and internally. I have a quick follow on for you, because then I think this is really interesting. You've brought us into the sort of geopolitical dynamics and Afghanistan in a lot of ways has been, to quote Rory Stewart, a place in between, right? And a theater for the great games of powers. One dynamic that's really interesting and seems to have been lost in the media coverage over the last several weeks is that it does seem that certain regional actors have planted, if you will, seeds that could sprout into their own subsidized or supported militias, right? So the famous example being Iran moving Fateh Meyun, majority Hazara militias into some central Hazara majority areas of Afghanistan, uh, the fact that you still have the Panjshir sort of trying to hold out as a stronghold and its connections to the, to the NDS, and the fact that we have a lot of these NDS militias are probably on death lists and have an interest in weakening the Taliban regime. As you pointed out, we, Pakistan is still a wild card, Russia and it is still a wild card. So take this forward a little bit. Do you foresee a scenario between now and, say, the end of the year where we could see the Taliban rule beginning to consolidate in certain places, but in other places not remaining stable and being unstable. And we see Afghanistan moving into a situation where it does become a theater for regional competition among different regional actors. 
I do actually. I mean, there is that risk of certain areas because look, I mean, the Taliban, yes, they've taken over most of the country or all of it. I mean, it's difficult to tell given the fog of war and information, but by and large, they have control over all the key areas that they needed to take over in order to demonstrate that they are in charge. But that doesn't mean that it's one thing to control a provincial district. You don't really control every square kilometer beyond that. There are many areas that people retreat to and then come back and fight another day. So it also depends on Taliban behavior. So if the Taliban move towards inclusivity, even if it is token, it's not, I'm not talking about inclusivity in a democratic tradition or a Western tradition. I'm talking about inclusivity as in like token. Hey, if I can get up one panchiri, then that will take the sting out of the resistance, or at least will give pause to people and say, no, I don't want to join this. Maybe I also want a piece of this action. And if I play nice with the Taliban, I'll get something in return as well. So if they go down that route, which they have actually already demonstrated, and this sort of connects to your point about the Fatimiyun and the Iranian-backed militias and their linkages to the Hazara, this isn't like factual, but there is intelligence out there that is floating in the open sources that the Taliban basically appointed several Shia Hazara commanders and gave them top positions in their militia. In, in, in their respective provinces. So in other words, there was, if you will, acquired leadership and, and brought it into their superstructure as opposed to leaving them outside and then creating a base for resistance. The head of the Taliban military commission is a Mullah Fasiullah. Fasiullah is a former Northern Alliance commander, and he was disaffected because of the infighting and the crony capitalism that the warlords in the north were engaged in. And he probably got the short end of the stick. The Taliban jumped on the opportunity at some point, brought him in, and slowly began to trust him, and he became the head of their military commission. So things like that, if they start to deepen that, to move from the superficial to the putting roots into these areas that are dominated by ethnic minorities and the Shia Hazara, who are a sectarian minority, then they have a better chance of preventing anything like that happening. But look, the Taliban is not a monolith. What the top people order Hey, don't mess with women. For God's sake, don't go after journalists. If this is what the Taliban leadership are telling their soldiers and their militiamen, doesn't mean that everybody in every area will listen. There will be excesses. There will be retribution. A lot of people join the Taliban not because they want to see Emirate 2.0. It's just upward social mobility. It's something that makes you important in your area and you gain respect and whatnot. And you're basically a thug. And if you are going to use your thuggish ways, let's say you hated somebody in an area and you became Taliban, now Taliban are on top, you're going to use that opportunity to go after and settle old scores, then that's going to create space for your enemies to come in. I'm not saying it's going to happen fast, but what I'm outlining here is the potential space in which a future resistance to the Taliban could take shape. Remember, this is a country in which People switch sides very easily. The Taliban ruled Kabul five years, from 96 to 2001. And within a month of the U.S. bombing, Northern Alliance forces 
that were holed up in like 5% of the country near the Tajikistan border, they swept into Kabul and pushed the Taliban out. And a month later, by December of 2001, Kandahar was lost as well by the Taliban, their home turf. So what we saw as quick switching of sides in, in this last week has happened several times. Abdul Rashid Dostum, when the Soviets pulled out, he was the first. Why he became famous? Why is Dostum famous? Not because he's the biggest warlord amongst the Uzbeks, but because he was a general leading a militia in the north during the communist regime. He's a former communist, an ideological one, who turned Islamist nationalist overnight and defected to the so-called Mujahideen. And that began the process of the unraveling of the communist regime, which took three years. But these are the realities that the Taliban will be trying to contain and control. Okay, so I want to flip now over to Russia because this is really interesting and important. When we talk about the spaces for resistance or acceptance of the Taliban, a big measure of that is how do we come to common universal metrics, if you will, of moderation? When we talk about a much maligned non-state actor like the Taliban that's trying to demonstrate that it can, in fact, be an accepted sovereign over a UN-recognized state, a lot of what people are going to be looking for, both in terms of governments, but also international NGOs, as well as if they can survive local NGOs, are these metrics of moderation. Russia, you have extensive and globally recognized experience thinking about this. What types of metrics of moderation are you looking for in Afghanistan, where and among whom, for you to be able to say, okay, there is some type of change in the Taliban? Thank you, Nick. Well, this, I believe ever since the surge of the Islamic State of ISIS, those dynamics have really changed. These metrics, these criteria changed. ISIS set the bar so low that groups can be criminal, they can be absolutely murderous, intolerant, they can be sectarian, and the international community will still, to some extent, accept them. Taliban will be playing on this as well. We see this, we've seen this in Syria, we've seen this in Iraq, with certain elements of the PMF that actually get to sit at the same table with representatives from the United Nations, despite their extensive record in war crimes and, and human rights violations. So the Taliban has that, to some extent, already covered. For now, within this first week, as Cameron was saying, they have reached out to different communities. They pardoned uh, government officials today, saying that they will be allowed, not government officials, sorry, government employees in the public sector, saying they will be allowed to resume their jobs. There will be no retribution or punishment. They are playing on this game so far. The way the international order functions today, it's not polar as it was 30, 40 years ago. The Taliban just getting recognition from China and Russia to a huge extent will be enough for them. If they can achieve that, the West can be comfortable where they can claim that they do not recognize the Taliban because they do not meet the basic human rights criteria for a state while other states do engage with them. And they meet their needs when it comes to trade, when it comes to any kind of engagement on the world scene. Maybe they don't need the West as much. The Taliban is not so much as concerned about this, perhaps just because, as I mentioned, the bar has just been set so low. So as long as they are not enslaving women and massacring minorities, if they can stay away from that, they have pretty much everything else covered. They can be violent in other areas and they can get a pass when it comes to that. We see this, for example, in Syria as well with the HTS. At least we see that sentiment kind of growing where there is a population 
that is being controlled by a group that the vast majority of people and policymakers believe is murderous and does not deserve impunity. However, how do you get aid to these people? How do you serve these people, make sure that at least their lives are not consistently under threat? I believe this is how the international community will also be looking at Afghanistan, not necessarily taking human rights, as Cameron was saying, in the way that the West views it, not putting that as a standard. But as long as there are no massacres against minorities and a slight shift from the Taliban of the 90s, that's one thing. The other point is, as long as there is no revival of al-Qaeda, also in the areas under their control. I believe that is going to be of huge interest to the United States, especially as the anniversary of 9-11 approaches and we are in this context today. Will Taliban allow for overtly terrorist organizations to operate from Afghanistan or reorganize or re-strategize from their lands without giving them too much trouble? That is another point that will determine a lot of the foreign policy towards them. Well, this is really interesting. I want to ask you a follow-up related to that. Talking to long-time Afghanistan hands over the last several years, one thing that struck me is that there's almost a consensus, especially folks that are in government that have been dealing with it for a long time, that an inflection point for the Taliban's regional perception was its willingness to fight ISIS Wilayat Khorasan. And that that's the moment in that 2017-2018 period when countries like Russia, China, even to a certain smaller, lesser extent, India, were willing to say, okay, for the time being, you are a useful tool against this group that is so beyond the pale that we can all agree. You notice that sort of when Russia laid out their demands that the Taliban to be accepted by Russia, ISIS was listed. And for the Chinese, it's, it's also various different Uyghur and Uzbek jihadist organizations that they're concerned about. So it's an interesting moment in that sense. Related to the Salafi jihadi organizations in particular, because that seems to be the concern of the regional actors, they're less concerned apparently about sort of Shia militias like the Fatimiyun that Iran is introducing back into Afghanistan. So we'll focus on the Salafi jihadi organizations for that reason. Do you believe that the Taliban can be an effective bulwark against these organizations? planning and launching attacks? Or do you see that the Taliban having a more fluid approach to these groups? I believe the Taliban will also use that leverage to their, their benefit. So according to how the international community engages with them and accepts them, they can help. They can portray themselves as helping, but they would want something in return. So they will not do that voluntarily. At the same time, they can also use that leverage in perhaps the fluid approach. As you said, if they feel that they are cornered and they have nothing left to lose, they are already in control of their country. So we can allow this to happen perhaps as a pressure point for Western states or for the international order as well. So that's going to be very much dependent on how the world chooses to engage with them. Regarding, for example, when, when it comes to China, when it comes to Russia, I believe that they will, because they do see some messaging from those two countries that they have accepted the Taliban or are willing to engage with them at least. We will see that they will engage with the jihadists or they will not allow jihadists from those countries to operate in any capacity that might harm that growing relationship. Okay, so let's take this transnational element a little bit deeper and a little bit farther. Caroline, I want to bring you in now. One of the major issues that we are seeing play out further afield 
in Europe in particular is this wary about a flood of Afghan refugees. And we've already seen French President Emmanuel Macron. He made a statement that was almost nativist in its approach to how Europe is going to secure its borders. There's also this issue that you've raised on Twitter about transnational criminal illicit drug flows from Afghanistan. The Taliban obviously has been engaged in that in an on-again, off-again manner. That's going to be another interesting point to watch. So in terms of these transnational issues that emanate from Afghanistan that can flow through Eurasia and beyond, what are you looking at? Well, certainly we've already started to see a lot of responses even before last week. So, for example, Turkey, they started erecting a wall along their border in preparation for a flood of Afghan refugees. So, yes, certainly this is a huge concern. Europe in particular, they've already started to have these, like you said, nativist responses. Some countries have been a bit more accepting than others. But certainly, I think that there is a memory from the 2015-2016 migrant crisis that is being played very well into these policies. And so that is certainly something that U.S. policymakers should be watching, even though NATO forces were involved in Afghanistan and there is an element of a connection between Europe and Afghanistan. Now, in regards to the drug trade, this is a really interesting question just because the Taliban has fluctuated in terms of how it is going to carry on with the opium trade and also a rising methamphetamine trade. The Taliban, there has been some confusion because of its conservative ideology and whether it will allow opium to be consumed, trafficked and smuggled within Afghanistan. But I think that the trade is going to certainly be on the rise, especially with the Talibanized government, because they have control over all over the border checkpoints. They have the means, they have the toolkit, they have the technical expertise. Labs have continued to emerge across the country. So the trade is on the rise, and this is certainly going to be of concern not only to European destination markets, but also destination markets in Central Asia, the Gulf, Iran, and transit countries as well. So this is going to be a matter that law enforcement agencies are going to want to cooperate and coordinate over. And the United States as well, the Drug Enforcement Agency, they're going to want to have a role in this as well. This is definitely going to be an item of concern, at least in the short term, as the Taliban consolidates control and it looks to boost this revenue source as they try and consolidate power and a semblance of stability in Afghanistan. To ask you a follow-on related to this, one of the items that was raised in President Biden's speech yesterday on Afghanistan was the fact that The U.S. has to focus on much more pressing challenges, such as China. There's a very active debate in Washington, D.C. circles about whether a withdrawal from Afghanistan supports or hinders the U.S. pivot to Asia and in particular to the front in China. I'm not going to ask you to make a comment on that, but what I am going to ask you is put in your geopolitical analytical hat on. To what extent do you think China cares that the U.S. is in Afghanistan And is there a potential opportunity for the U.S. in its absence to find a way to weaken China's appeal through Belt and Road Initiative? That's a great question and one that I believe, Kamran, you've written on extensively and I've started to explore as well. 
Central Asia is going to be a very important theater to counter China. It is the land route that China is seeking to extend its influence through the Belt and Road Initiative, but also to a certain extent militarily. In Tajikistan, China has a base. It already has an outpost that it is carefully watching uh, potential instability and the overspill of violence from Afghanistan. And so for the United States, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure if the United States has a very long-term strategy with this, but certainly Afghanistan was an outpost for the U.S. to serve as a deterrent, a potential tripwire deployment to extended Chinese influence. Now, I don't necessarily think that China is going to look to extend the BRI through Afghanistan. It's already encountering troubles with the uh, CPEC corridor with Pakistan. Um, I think it's going to try and push its way through Central Asian republics. That being said, Afghanistan is going to play a role in how it defines the BRI, how China relates to the BRI, and also how China is going to try and counter U.S. influence in the region. I think that the U.S. so far, it's looking to Shachikistan and a number of other uh, Central Asian republics to try and counter the BRI and also keep an eye on and uh, conduct intelligence operations in relation to Afghanistan. But it's very clear that the U.S. isn't necessarily seeing and perceiving Central Asia as a theater of primary competition. Perhaps in the next few years, there will be the inclusion of Central Asia in the national defense strategy um, and a number of other doctrines that define great power competition, near peer co power competition with Russia and China. Russia is, of course, the other actor as well that's operating in Central Asia that makes this space all that more important and significant to U.S. interests. I'm not necessarily sure if there's a clear answer for that right now, but especially as China grows more concerned over instability in Afghanistan, that's going to change Chinese behavior. And I think that's going to convince this administration and uh, future administrations that Central Asia is going to be a very important theater. I want to give each of you the opportunity. You have a minute with the president. What are you going to tell him that he needs to look at three months down the line around Christmas 2021? What does Afghanistan look like? If I were to be engaged in that conversation, I have a few immediate recommendations. Number one is the United States is no longer militarily involved. That mission is over. There is no going back. And we lost, we realized and very painfully that the 20 years that we invested in building the Afghan state was a waste. We don't have anything to show for. But what we do need to remember is that it wasn't all a loss. We left behind a civil society. We spent 20 years trying to cultivate it, trying to engender it, and there was some significant progress. We can't abandon that project. And somehow, diplomatically, through the power of the purse, we have leverage that we can basically build upon those gains that were made and not completely lose them to a Taliban regime. It's not simple. It requires skillful uh, statecraft and creativity. There is the conundrum of how do you do that and avoid too much contact and recognition to a Taliban regime. So this may not happen immediately, but we need to start working on it because that's the hope for the future. The people who enjoyed freedoms for the last 20 years 
whether they were in the media, whether they were women being empowered at all levels from the village all the way to the political elite, women came out and created a presence for themselves in public life, whether it was minorities or people in the rural areas who enjoyed a better lifestyle, relatively speaking, that still can be salvaged and we can't give up on that. We have to work on basically securing as much of that as possible because that is going to be our partner in country to shape and manage the Taliban regime moving forward. These guys formed the resistance to the Taliban far more, in my opinion, significantly than any armed resistance that may come. And therefore, we, it is our challenge. This is the project that we have to work on because at the end of the day, if the Taliban are going to evolve, and we don't want them to evolve into a power like the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is a hostile adversarial player in the region that does everything that's counter to U.S. and regional interests. We will never be friends with the Taliban, but we can work with the Taliban in a limited way. But let's heavily focus on the people of Afghanistan and figure out ways on how we can help them. Right now, there is this rush of getting as many people out as possible. That's necessary, but you can't get everybody out. And the more you focus on getting people out, the more you're shaping the impression that this is a lost cause. And it's not a lost cause. I like to see the glass half full rather than empty. And I think that in 20 years, we failed at creating a viable state. We failed utterly on that level, but we did create a civil society and we did force the Taliban, even if it was very, very minimal, into accepting certain things. That the Taliban are now allowing women, I mean, it's too early to make a judgment call in an absolute sense, but the behavior of the Taliban, the way that they're trying to play in the diplomatic uh, space is because of our intervention. Had we not intervened, Imagine if the Taliban regime was never toppled in 2001, what kind of regime would we be looking at today, 20 years later? So there have been positives from the U.S. intervention that get lost because the state that we tried to build failed. We were never going to build a state, but we did build society and let's work on it. That's my message for the president. I think for the Biden administration, it's going to be very important to look for signs of an emerging power vacuum. So while I agree with Kamran that all is not entirely lost and there is a civil society to engage with, there is also, of course, the risk that the Taliban opens up Afghanistan into a security vacuum. They encourage and embolden insurgent groups along the border. And then, of course, that there's increased interest and perhaps engagement from outside powers. And so for the Biden administration, that is going to be something to watch. And something else that I think the Biden administration should be looking at, and this doesn't necessarily have to relate to December of 2021, but rather kind of a lesson learned from this entire development. It's that this wasn't necessarily just a failure on intelligence, but also it was a failure on diplomacy, policy, political policy, and also capacity building with the Afghan security forces. 
And as the U.S. looks to pivot to great power competition, it's going to be very important that the Biden administration, as it looks to withdrawal, that it determines what a responsible withdrawal looks like. And I don't think we have a plan for that. And as there's going to be inevitable drawdowns in Iraq and Syria, I think it's going to be very important that the Biden administration learns from lessons in Afghanistan as they look to reduce their footprint in other regions as well, in other countries. That's the other message I think I'd take away from this for the Biden administration. I would pay attention to how the Taliban's perceived victory is being echoed and how it looks like, how it's being perceived in the far Muslim world. I think that's an important point. Nonetheless, it's a very tricky topic as well. We don't want to descend back to the whole CVE, counterterrorism, counter messaging, ex violent extremism. That did not necessarily work. That was a huge waste of taxpayers' money and it did not meet its end goals. We can agree to that, I believe, at least most people. But that is something that he should look at because if this echoes in different places, it will drag the United States back into the region, whether it's in the Middle East or in Asia, to secure its own national interest inside the United States. And right now you have growing domestic violence in America. It cannot afford to be this fraction. Its effort on countering extremism cannot afford to be two fractions. So I would say look at that as well. In a way, having to guarantee that it does not become a problem, it might require extensive diplomatic efforts also with countries that are not necessarily U.S. allies, perhaps occasional partners, to work with them to guarantee that that does not grow in, in Afghanistan. The other thing is, and this is basically reiterating what Cameron said earlier, diplomacy here is definitely key. And it's going to be very, very tough, but it should start very soon. There might be some concessions in principles of who the United States chooses actually to partner with on Afghanistan to make sure that the people remaining there that their lives are less miserable than they could be if the United States or if the world order does decide not to intervene. This would require not only diplomacy, but pressuring the Taliban in a way to change or to moderate in a way. It's a very, very long shot, but it's definitely worth taking for the people that remain there, in addition to getting those who are under immediate threat out. So not only those who have worked with the United States, but let's look at the minorities who are under threat. Let's look at women who have been directly threatened by them. Making sure that they're safe and secure also should be a priority. And knowing how the bureaucracy works in America, this might take a while. So this should also be on the top agenda. Thank you for joining us for today's important emergency episode of the New Lines Contours podcast. This is the first in a series of publications that we expect to release following affairs in Afghanistan closely.